Chapter Ten of the Night Side of Nature, or Ghosts and Ghost Seers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Night Side of Nature, or Ghosts and Ghost Seers, by Catherine Crow. Chapter Ten: The Future That Awaits Us, Part One in all ages of the world and in all parts of it mankind have earnestly desired to learn the fate that awaited them when they had shuffled off this mortal coil and those pretending to be their instructors have built up different systems which have stood in the stead of knowledge and more or less satisfied the bulk of the people the interest on this subject is at the present period in the most highly civilized portions of the globe less than it has been at any preceding one the great proportion of us live for this world alone and think very little of the next we are in too great a hurry of pleasure or business to bestow any time on a subject of which we have such vague notions notions so vague that in short we can scarcely by any effort of the imagination bring the idea home to ourselves and when we are about to die we are seldom in a situation to do more than resign ourselves to what is inevitable and blindly meet our fate while on the other hand what is generally called the religious world is so engrossed by its struggles for power and money or by its sectarian disputes and enmities and so narrowed and circumscribed by dogmatic orthodoxies that it has neither inclination nor liberty to turn back or look around and endeavor to gather up from past records and present observation such hints as are now and again dropped in our path to give us an intimation of what the truth may be the rationalistic age too out of which we are only just emerging and which succeeded one of gross superstition having settled beyond appeal that there never was such a thing as a ghost that the dead never do come back to tell us the secrets of their prison-house and that nobody believes such idle tales but children and old women seem to have shut the door against the only channel through which any information could be sought revelation tells us very little on this subject reason can tell us nothing and if nature is equally silent or if we are to be deterred from questioning her from the fear of ridicule there is certainly no resource left us but to rest contented in our ignorance and each wait till the awful secret is disclosed to ourselves a great many things have been pronounced untrue and absurd and even impossible by the highest authorities of the age in which they lived which have afterward and indeed within a very short period been found to be both possible and true i confess myself for one to have no respect whatever for these dogmatic denials and affirmations and i am quite of opinion that vulgar incredulity is a much more contemptible thing than vulgar credulity we know very little of what is and still less of what may be and till a thing has been proved by induction logically impossible 
we have no right whatever to pronounce that it is so. As I have said before, a priori conclusions are perfectly worthless, and the sort of investigation that is bestowed upon subjects of the class of which I am treating, something worse, inasmuch as they deceive the timid and the ignorant, and that very numerous class which pins its faith on authority and never ventures to think for itself, by an assumption of wisdom and knowledge, which, if examined and analyzed, would very frequently prove to be nothing more respectable than obstinate prejudice and rash assertion. For my own part, I repeat, I insist upon nothing. The opinions I have formed, from the evidence collected, may be quite erroneous. If so, as I seek only the truth, I shall be glad to be undeceived, and shall be quite ready to accept a better explanation of these facts, whenever it is offered to me. But it is in vain to tell me that this explanation is to be found in what is called imagination, or in a morbid state of the nerves, or an unusual excitement of the organs of color and form, or an imposture, or in all these together. The existence of all such sources of error and delusion I am far from denying, but I find instances that is quite impossible to reduce under any one of those categories, as we at present understand them. The multiplicity of these instances, too, for not to mention the large number that are never made known or carefully concealed, if I were to avail myself liberally of cases already recorded in various works, many of which I know, and many others I hear of as existing, but which I cannot conveniently get access to, I might fill volumes. German literature abounds in them. The number of the examples, I repeat, even on the supposition that they are not facts, would of itself form the subject of a very curious physiological or psychological inquiry. If so many people in respectable situations of life, and in apparently a normal state of health, are capable of either such gross impostures, or the subjects of such extraordinary spectral illusions, it would certainly be extremely satisfactory to learn something of the conditions that induce these phenomena in such abundance, and all I expect from my book at present is to induce a suspicion that we are not quite so wise as we think ourselves, and that it might be worth while to inquire a little seriously into reports, which may perchance turn out to have a deeper interest for us than all those various questions, public and private, put together with which we are daily agitating ourselves. I have alluded in an earlier part of this work to the belief entertained by the ancients that the souls of men, on being disengaged from their bodies, passed into a middle state called Hades, in which their portions seemed to be neither that of complete happiness nor of insupportable misery. They retained their personality, their human form, their memory of the past, and their interest in those that had been dear to them on earth. Communications were occasionally made by the dead to the living, they mourned over their duties neglected and their errors committed. Many of their mortal feelings, passions, and propensities seemed to survive, 
and they sometimes sought to repair through the instrumentality of the living the injuries they had formerly inflicted in short death was merely a transition from one condition of life to another but in this latter state although we do not see them condemned to undergo any torments we perceive that they are not happy they are indeed compartments in this dark region there is tartarus for the wicked and the elysian fields for the good but they are comparatively thinly peopled it is in the mid-region that these pale shades abound consistently with the fact that here on earth moral as well as intellectual mediocrity is the rule and the extremes of good or evil the exceptions with regard to the opinion entertained of a future state by the hebrews the old testament gives us very little information but what glimpses we do obtain of it appear to exhibit notions analogous to those of the heathen nations inasmuch as that the personality and the form seem to be retained and the possibility of these departed spirits revisiting the earth and holding commune with the living is admitted the request of the rich man also that lazarus might be sent to warn his brethren yet alive of his own miserable condition testifies to the existence of these opinions and it is worthy of remark that the favor is denied not because its performance is impossible but because the mission would be unavailing a prediction which it appears to me time has singularly justified altogether the notion that in the state entered upon after we leave this world the personality and form are retained that these shades sometimes revisit the earth and that the memory of the past still survives seems to be universal for it is found to exist among all people savage and civilized and if not founded on observation and experience it becomes difficult to account for such unanimity on a subject which i think speculatively considered would not have been productive of such results and one proof of this is that those who reject such testimony and tradition as we have in regard to it and rely only on their own understandings appear to be pretty uniformly led to form opposite conclusions they cannot discern the mode of such a phenomenon it is open to all sorts of scientific objections and the qui bono sticks in their teeth this position being admitted as i think it must be we have but one resource left whereby to account for the universality of this persuasion which is that in all periods and places both mankind and womankind as well as in health as in sickness have been liable to a series of spectral illusions of a most extraordinary and complicated nature and bearing such a remarkable similarity to each other in regard to the objects supposed to be seen or heard that they have been universally led to the same erroneous interpretation of the phenomenon it is manifestly not impossible that this may be the case and if it be so it becomes the business of physiologists to inquire into the matter and give us some account of it in the meantime we may be permitted to take the other view of the question and examine what probabilities seem to be in its favor when the body is about to die, 
that which cannot die, and which, to spare words, I will call the soul, departs from it whither? We do not know. But in the first place, we have no reason to believe that the space destined for its habitation is far removed from the earth, since, knowing nothing about it, we are equally entitled to suppose the contrary. And in the next, that which we call distance is a condition that merely regards material objects, and of which a spirit is quite independent, just as our thoughts are, which can travel from here to China and back again in a second of time. Well, then, supposing this being to exist somewhere, it is not unreasonable to suppose that the souls of the inhabitants of each planet continue to hover within the sphere of that planet, to which, for anything we can tell, they may be attached by a magnetic attraction. Supposing it is to find itself in space, free of the body, endowed with the memory of the past, and consequently with a consciousness of its own deserts, able to perceive that which we do not ordinarily perceive, namely, those who have passed into a similar state with itself. Will it not naturally seek its place among those spirits which most resemble itself, and with whom, therefore, it must have the most affinity? On earth, the good seek the good, and the wicked the wicked, and the axiom that like associates with like, we cannot doubt will be as true hereafter as now. In my father's house there are many mansions, and our intuitive sense of what is fit and just must needs assure us that this is so. There are too many degrees of moral worth and of moral unworth among mankind to permit of our supposing that justice could be satisfied by an abrupt division into two opposite classes. On the contrary, there must be infinite shades of desert, and as we must consider that which a spirit enters into on leaving the body is not so much a place as a condition, so there must be as many degrees of happiness or suffering as there are individuals, each carrying with him his own heaven or hell. For it is a vulgar notion to imagine that heaven and hell are places. They are states. And it is in ourselves we must look for both. When we leave the body, we carry them with us. As the tree falls, so it shall lie. The soul which here has wallowed in wickedness, or been sunk into sensuality, will not be suddenly purified by the death of the body. Its moral condition remains what its earthly sojourn has trained it to, but its means of indulging its propensities are lost. If it has no godly aspirations here, it will not be drawn to God there. And if it has so bound itself to the body that it has known no happiness but that to which the body ministered, it will be incapable of happiness when deprived of that enjoyment. Here we see at once what a variety of conditions must necessarily ensue, how many comparatively negative states there must be between those of positive happiness or positive misery. We may thus conceive how a soul, on entering upon this new condition, must find its own place or state. If its thoughts and aspirations here have been heavenward, and its pursuits noble, its conditions will be heavenly. The contemplation of God's works, 
seen not as by our mortal eyes but in their beauty and their truth and ever-glowing sentiments of love and gratitude and for aught we know good offices to souls in need would constitute a suitable heaven or happiness for such a being an incapacity for such pleasures and the absence of all others would constitute a negative state in which the chief suffering would consist in mournful regrets and a vague longing for something better which the untrained soul that never lifted itself from the earth knows not how to seek while malignant passions and unquenchable desires would constitute the appropriate hell of the wicked for we must remember that although a spirit is independent of those physical laws which are the conditions of matter the moral law which is indestructible belongs peculiarly to it that is to the spirit and is inseparable from it we must next remember that this earthly body we inhabit is more or less a mask by means of which we conceal from each other those thoughts which if constantly exposed would unfit us for living in community but when we die this mask falls away and the truth shows nakedly there is no more disguise we appear as we are spirits of light or spirits of darkness and there can be no difficulty i should think in conceiving this since we know that even our present opaque and comparatively inflexible features in spite of all efforts to the contrary will be the index of the mind and that the expression of the face is gradually moulded to the fashion of the thoughts how much more must this be the case with the fluent and diaphanous body which we expect is to succeed the fleshly one thus i think we have arrived at forming some conception of the state that awaits us hereafter the indestructible moral law fixes our place or condition affinity governs our associations and the mask under which we conceal ourselves having fallen away we appear to each other as we are and i must here observe that in this last circumstance must be compromised one very important element of happiness or misery for the love of the pure spirits for each other will be for ever excited by simply beholding that beauty and brightness which will be the inalienable expression of their goodness while the reverse will be the case with the spirits of darkness for no one loves wickedness in either themselves or others however we may practice it we must also understand that the words dark and light which in this world of appearance we use metaphorically to express good and evil must be understood literally when speaking of that other world where everything will be seen as it is goodness is truth and truth is light and wickedness is falsehood and falsehood is darkness and so it will be seen to be those who have not the light of truth to guide them will wander darkly through this valley of the shadow of death those in whom the light of goodness shines will dwell in the light which is inherent in themselves the former will be in the kingdom of darkness the latter in the kingdom of light all the records existing of the blessed spirits that have appeared ancient or modern exhibit them as robed in light 
while their anger or sorrow is symbolized by their darkness. Now there appears to me nothing incomprehensible in this view of the future. On the contrary, it is the only one which I ever found myself capable of conceiving, or reconciling with the justice and mercy of our Creator. He does not punish us, we punish ourselves. We have built up a heaven or a hell to our own liking, and we carry it with us. The fire that forever burns without consuming is the fiery evil in which we have chosen our part, and the heaven in which we shall dwell will be the heavenly peace which will dwell in us. We are our own judges and our own chastisers, and here I must say a few words on the subject of that apparently, to us, preternatural memory which is developed under certain circumstances, and to which I alluded in a former chapter. Every one will have heard that persons who have been drowned and recovered have had, in what would have been their last moments, if no means had been used to revive them, a strange vision of the past, in which their whole life seemed to float before them in review, and I have heard of the same phenomenon taking place in moments of impending death in other forms. Now, as it is not during the struggle for life, but immediately before insensibility ensues, that this vision occurs, it must be the act of a moment, and this renders incomprehensible to us what is said by the seers of Prevorst, and other somnambules of the highest order, namely, that the instant the soul is freed from the body, it sees its whole earthly career in a single sign. It knows that it is good or evil, and pronounces its own sentence. The extraordinary memory occasionally exhibited in sickness, where the link between the soul and the body is probably loosened, shows us an adumbration of this faculty. But this self-pronounced sentence, we are led to hope, is not final, nor does it seem consistent with the love and mercy of God that it should be so. There must be few, indeed, who leave this earth fit for heaven, for although the immediate frame of mind in which dissolution takes place is probably very important, it is surely a pernicious error, encouraged by jail chaplains and philanthropists, that a late repentance and a few parting prayers can purify a soul sullied by years of wickedness. Would we at once receive such a one into our intimate communion and love? Should we not require time for the stains of vice to be washed away and habits of virtue to be formed? Assuredly we should. And how can we imagine that the purity of heaven is to be sullied by that approximation which the purity of earth would forbid? It would be cruel to say and irrational to think that this late repentance is of no avail. It is doubtless so far of avail that the straining upward and the heavenly aspirations of the parting soul are carried with it, so that, when it is free, instead of choosing the darkness, it will flee to as much light as is in itself, and be ready, through the mercy of God and the ministering of brighter spirits, to receive more. But in this case, 
as also in the innumerable instances of those who die in what may be called a negative state the advance must be progressive though wherever the desire exists i must believe that this advance is possible if not wherefore did christ after being put to death in the flesh go and preach to the spirits in prison it would have been a mockery to preach salvation to those who had no hope nor would they having no hope have listened to the preacher i think these views are at once cheering encouraging and beautiful and i cannot but believe that were they more generally entertained and more intimately conceived they would be very beneficial in their effects as i have said before the extremely vague notions people have of a future life prevent the possibility of its exercising any great influence upon the present the picture on one side is too revolting and inconsistent with our ideas of divine goodness to be deliberately accepted while with regard to the other our feelings somewhat resemble those of a little girl i once knew who being told by her mother what was to be the reward of goodness if she were so happy as to reach heaven put her finger in her eye and began to cry exclaiming oh mamma how tired i shall be singing the question which will now naturally arise and which i am bound to answer is how have these views been formed and what is the authority for them and the answer i have to make will startle many minds when i say that they have been gathered from two sources first and chiefly from the state in which those spirits appear to be and sometimes avow themselves to be who after quitting the earth return to it and make themselves visible to the living and secondly from the revelations of numerous somnambules of the highest order which entirely conform in all cases not only with the revelations of the dead but with each other i do not mean to imply when i say this that i consider the question finally settled as to whether somnambules are really clear seers or only visionaries nor that i have by any means established the fact that the dead do sometimes actually return but i am obliged to beg the question for the moment since whether these sources be pure or impure it is from them the information has been collected it is true that these views are extremely conformable with those entertained by plato in his school of philosophers and also with those of the mystics of a later age but the latter certainly and the former probably built up their systems on the same foundation and i am very far from using the term mystics in the opprobrious or at least contemptuous tone in which it has of late years been uttered in this country for although abounding in errors as regarded the concrete and although their want of an inductive methodology led them constantly astray in the region of the real they were sublime teachers in that of the ideal and they seem to have been endowed with a wonderful insight into this veiled department of our nature it may be here objected that we only admire their insight because being in entire ignorance of the subject of it 
we accept raving for revelation and that no weight can be attached to the conformity of later disclosures with theirs since they have no doubt been founded upon them as to the ignorance it is admitted and simply looking at their views as they stand they have nothing to support them but their sublimity and consistency but as regards the value of the evidence afforded by conformity it rests on very different grounds for the reporters from whom we collect our intelligence are with very few exceptions those of whom we may safely predicate that they were wholly unacquainted with the systems promulgated by the platonic philosophers or the mystics either nor in most instances had ever heard of their names for as regards that peculiar somnambulic state which is here referred to the subjects of it appear to be generally very young people of either sex and chiefly girls and as regards ghost seeing although this phenomenon seems to have no connection with the age of the seer yet it is not usually from the learned or the cultivated that we collect our cases inasmuch as the apprehension of ridicule on the one hand and the fast hold the doctrine of spectral illusions is taken of them on the other prevent their believing in their own senses or producing any evidence they might have to furnish and here will be offered another subtle objection namely that the testimony of such witnesses as i have above described is perfectly worthless but this i deny the somnambulic states i allude to are such as have been developed not artificially but naturally and often under very extraordinary nervous diseases accompanied with catalepsy and various symptoms far beyond feigning such cases are rare and in this country seem to have been very little observed for doubtless they must occur and when they do occur they are very carefully concealed by the families of the patient and not followed up or investigated as a psychological phenomenon by the physician for it is to be observed that without questioning no revelations are made they are not as far as i know ever spontaneous i have heard of two such cases in this country both occurring in the higher classes and both patients being young ladies but although surprising phenomena were exhibited interrogation was not permitted and the particulars were never allowed to transpire no doubt there are examples of error and examples of imposture so there are in everything where room is to be found for them and i am quite aware of the propensity of hysterical patients to deceive but it is for the judicious observers to examine the genuineness of each particular instance and it is perfectly certain and well established by the german physiologists and psychologists who have carefully studied the subject that there are many above all suspicion provided then that the case be genuine it remains to be determined how much value is to be attached to the revelations for they may be quite honestly delivered and yet be utterly worthless the mere ravings of a disordered brain and it is here that conformity becomes important for i cannot admit the objection that the simple circumstance of the patient's being diseased invalidates their evidence so entirely as to annul even the value 
of their unanimity, because, although it is not logically impossible, that a certain state of nervous derangement should occasion all somnambules of the class in question to make similar answers when interrogated regarding a subject of which in their normal condition they know nothing, and on which they have never reflected, and that these answers should not be only consistent, but disclosing far more elevated views than are evolved by minds of a very superior order which have reflected on it very deeply. I say, although this is not logically impossible, it will assuredly be found, by most persons, an hypothesis of much more difficult acceptance than the one I propose, namely, that whatever be the cause of the effect, these patients are in a state of clear seeing, wherein they have more than mortal knowledge, that is, more knowledge than mortals possess in their normal condition, and it must not be forgotten that we have some facts confessed by all experienced physicians and psychologists, even in this country, proving that there are states of disease in which preternatural faculties have been developed, such as no theory has yet satisfactorily accounted for. But Dr. Passivent, who has written a very philosophical work on the subject of vital magnetism and clear seeing, asserts that it is an error to imagine that the ecstatic condition is merely the product of disease. He says that it has sometimes exhibited itself in persons of very vigorous constitutions, instancing Joan of Arc, a woman whom historians have little understood, and whose memory of Voltaire's detestable poem has ridiculed and degraded but who was, nevertheless, a great psychological phenomenon. The circumstance, too, that phenomena of this kind are more frequently developed in women than in men, and that they are merely the consequence of her greater nervous irritability, has been made another objection to them. An objection, however, which Dr. Passivent considers founded on ignorance of the essential difference between the sexes which is not merely a physical, but a psychological one. Man is more productive than receptive. In a state of perfectibility, both attributes would be equally developed in him. But in this terrestrial life, only imperfect phases of the entire sum of the soul's faculties are so. Mankind are but children, male or female, young or old, of man in his totality, we have but faint adumbrations here and there. Thus the ecstatic woman will be more frequently a seer, instinctive and intuitive, man a doer and a worker, and as all genius is a degree of ecstasy or clear seeing, we perceive the reason wherefore in man it is more productive than in woman and that our greatest poets and artists in all kinds are of the former sex and even the most remarkable women produce but little in science or art while on the other hand the feminine instinct and tact and intuitive seeing of truth are frequently more sure than the ripe and deliberate judgment of man and it is hence that solitude and such conditions as develop the passive or receptive at the expense of the active, 
tend to produce this state and to assimilate the man more to the nature of the woman while in her they intensify these distinguishing characteristics and this is also the reason that simple and childlike people and races are the most frequent subjects of these phenomena it is only necessary to read mozart's account of his own moments of inspiration to comprehend not only the similarity but the positive identity of the ecstatic state with a state of genius in activity when all goes well with me he says when i am in a carriage or walking or when i cannot sleep at night the thoughts come streaming in upon me most fluently whence or how is more than i can tell what comes i hum to myself as it proceeds then follow the counterpoint and the clang of the different instruments and if i am not disturbed my soul is fixed and the thing grows greater and broader and clearer and i have it all in my head even when the piece is a long one and i see it like a beautiful picture not hearing the different parts in succession as they might be played but the whole at once that is the delight the composing and the making is like a beautiful and vivid dream but this hearing of it is the best of all what is this but clear seeing backward and forward the past and the future the one faculty is not a whit more surprising and incomprehensible than the other to those who possess neither only we see the material product of one and therefore believe in it but as passivent justly observes these coruscations belong not to genius exclusively they are latent in all men in the highly gifted this divine spark becomes a flame to light the world withal but even in the coarsest and least developed organizations it may and does momentarily break forth the germ of the highest spiritual life is in the rudest according to its degree as well as in the highest form of man we have yet seen he is but a more imperfect type of the race in whom this spiritual germ has not unfolded itself then with respect to our second source of information i am quite aware that it is equally difficult to establish its validity but there are a few arguments in our favor here too in the first place as dr johnson says though all reason is against us a tradition is for us and this conformity of tradition is surely of some weight since i think it would be difficult to find any parallel instance of a universal tradition that was entirely without a foundation in truth for with respect to witchcraft the belief in which is equally universal we now know that the phenomena were generally facts although the interpretations put upon them were fables it may certainly be objected that this universal belief in ghosts only arises from the universal prevalence of spectral illusions but if so as i have before observed these spectral illusions become a subject of very curious inquiry for in the first place they frequently occur under circumstances the least likely to induce them and to people whom we should least expect to find the victims of them and in the second there is a most remarkable conformity here too 
not only between the individual cases occurring among all classes of persons who had never exhibited the slightest tendency to nervous derangement or somnambulism but also between these and the revelations of the somnambules in short it seems to me that life is reduced to a mere phantasmagoria if spectral illusions are so prevalent so complicated in their nature and so delusive as they must be if all the instances of ghost-seeing that come before us are to be referred to that theory how numerous these are i confess myself not to have had the least idea till my attention was directed to the inquiry and that these instances have been equally frequent in all periods and places we cannot doubt from the variety of persons that have given in their adhesion or at least that have admitted as addison did that he could not refuse the universal testimony in favour of the reappearance of the dead strengthened by that of many credible persons with whom he was acquainted indeed the testimony in favour of the facts has been at all periods too strong to be wholly rejected so that even the materialists like lucretius and the elder pliny find themselves obliged to acknowledge them while on the other hand the extravagant admissions that are demanded of us by those who endeavour to explain them away prove that their disbelief rests on no more solid foundation than their own prejudices i acknowledge all the difficulty of establishing the facts such difficulties as indeed encompass few other branches of inquiry but i maintain that the position of the opponents is still worse although by their high tone and contemptuous laugh they assume to have taken up one that being fortified by reason is quite impregnable forgetting that the wisdom of man is pre-eminently foolishness before god when it wanders into this region of unknown things forgetting also that they are just serving this branch of inquiry as their predecessors whom they laughed at did physiology concocting their systems out of their own brains instead of the responses of nature and with still more rashness and presumption this department of her kingdom being more inaccessible more incapable of demonstration and more entirely beyond our control for these spirits will not come when we do call them and i confess it often surprises me to hear the very shallow nonsense that very clever men talk upon the subject and the inefficient arguments they use to disprove what they know nothing about i am quite conscious that the facts i shall adduce are open to controversy I can bring forward no evidence that will satisfy a scientific mind, but neither are my opponents a whit better fortified. All I do hope to establish is not a proof but a presumption, and the conviction I desire to awaken in people's minds is not that these things are so, but that they may be so, and that it is well worth our while to inquire whether they are or not it will be seen that these views of a future state are extremely similar to those of isaac taylor as suggested in his physical theory of another life at least as far as he has entered upon the subject and it is natural 
that they should be so because he seems also to have been a convert to the opinion that the dead do sometimes break through the boundaries that hem in the ethereal crowds and if so as if by trespass may in single instances infringe upon the ground of common corporeal life let us now fancy this dispossessed soul entering on its new career amazed and no more able than when it was in the body to accommodate itself at once to conditions of existence for which it was unprepared if its aspirations had previously been heavenward these conditions would not be altogether new and it would speedily find itself at home in a sphere in which it had dwelt before for as i have formerly said a spirit must be where its thoughts and affections are and the soul whose thoughts and affections had been directed to heaven would only awaken after death into a more perfect and unclouded heaven but imagine the contrary of all this conceive what this awakening must be to an earthbound spirit to one altogether unprepared for its new home carrying no light within it floating in the dim obscure clinging to the earth where all its affectations were garnered up for where its treasure is there shall it be also it will find its condition evil more or less according to the degree of its moral light or darkness and in proportion to the amount of the darkness will be its incapacity to seek for light now there seems nothing offensive to our notions of the divine goodness in this conception of what awaits us when the body dies it appears to me on the contrary to offer a more comprehensible and coherent view than any other that has been presented to me yet the state i have depicted is very much the hades of the greeks and romans it is the middle state on which all souls enter a state in which there are many mansions that is there are innumerable states probably not permanent but ever progressive or retrograde for we cannot conceive of any moral state being permanent since we know perfectly well that ours is never so and it is always advancing or retroceding when we are not improving we are deteriorating and so it must necessarily be with us hereafter now if we admit the probability of this middle state we have removed one of the great objections which are made to the belief in the reappearance of the dead namely that the blessed are too happy to return to the earth and that the wicked have it not in their power to do so this difficulty arises however very much from the material ideas entertained of heaven and hell the notion that they are places instead of states i am told that the greek word hades is derived from hades invisible and that the hebrew word sheol which has the same signification also implies a state not a place since it may be interpreted into desiring longing asking praying these words in the septuagint are translated grave death and hell but previously to the Reformation they seem to have borne their original meaning, that is, the state into which the soul entered at the death of the body. 
it was probably to get rid of the purgatory of the roman church which had doubtless become the source of many absurd notions and corrupt practices that the doctrines of a middle state or hades was set aside besides which the honest desire for reformation in all reforming churches being alloyed by the odium theologicum the purifying besom is apt to take too discursive a sweep exercising less modesty and discrimination than might be desirable and thus not uncommonly wiping away truth and falsehood together end of chapter ten part one